Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and Edmunds Day, Edo. I've been wanting to have Edo on this show since I started doing this show and it has finally happened. I am so excited about this episode. It was recorded a little while ago. Um, I think it's important to mention that because uh, obviously in the time since um, a dear friend of ours of the comedy community in general and I think of Australian and New Zealand comedy fans and worldwide comedy fans, uh, the great Kel Wilson passed away. Uh, Everybody will be familiar with that at this point. We uh, formally and officially said goodbye to her last week. Um, There was a very beautiful event um, that I was private and I won't go into the details of, but um, an incredible tribute to an incredible person. I won't add my comments uh, here because the truth of it is that there's like if I started talking, I'd just talk for the next hour and a half about all the wonderful things that I remember about Cal and the experiences that we had together. But of course, there is an episode of Philosophy with Kel. Um, when when someone dies, um, and unfortunately now, you know, I've been doing Philosophy long enough that there's been a few people where this has been the case. Um, I think Kel being the most shocking of them all, though. Uh, the question is always asked whether it is worth republishing the episode of Philosophy that they featured in. I'm not a person to judge other people who do that. Uh, And in making my decision around this, it is not a judgment of other people who do that because I have certainly come to understand through conversations that I've had with people that Cal's episode of philosophy has been a great celebration of her and a great comfort uh, to friends and family who have listened to it in the last couple of weeks. So, I guess this is my compromise position, which is to remind you that there is that episode. And if you are the sort of person who thinks that um, you would like to know more about Cal and her view on life, then then that episode does exist and you can go and find it. And I think it is very emblemic of just how lovely and wonderful and great a person that she was and a hilarious person. Yeah, first and foremost, I think, um, you know, one of the most hilarious people on the planet and uh, anyway, I, I, this is why I can't talk about it. I can't get into it because once I start getting into it, it's too much. But it is there if you want to go and check it out with the proviso, as I always say, that I ask people in this podcast what they think happens when they die. So, you know, just be aware of that and be ready for that if you are going to go and have a listen to that podcast. Edo, on the other hand, fucking brilliant. And here and on this podcast and you're going to love it. It feels like a weird transition to, you know, do some plugs, but comedy goes on and I need to do some plugs. So here they are. Uh, Question Everything, which is a show that celebrates Australian comedians and Australian talent, uh, is filmed live in front of a studio audience on Tuesdays in Sydney. It is free to come and watch in the studio audience and having a great studio audience makes such a difference to the show because you are the wind beneath the comedian's wings. You are the ocean on which they surf and the better that audience is, the better the panel is on that show. So I am calling all Sydney friends who want to see a brilliant free 
comedy show uh, to Google Question Everything and Eventbrite or just go to my socials and find the links. But Question Everything and Eventbrite, season three, and you will find the link to book tickets. They are absolutely free. Get a group of friends together. Come along. It's a really fun night, honestly. You laugh so much. You get to see so much stuff that the ABC won't let us go to air because, you know, for taste or legal reasons, it's a really good, fun night out. It starts at 5.15, goes through, we say until 8 o'clock, but it's always done, you know, by about 7.30 at the very latest. Uh, you are done. Um uh, so it's on a Tuesday. We've got a few more to go this year. If that sounds like something you would be into, we would love you to be part of it. So get a group of friends together. Come in, be in the live studio audience. And if you can't be in Sydney to see it live, watch it on ABC TV on 8.30 on a Wednesday night or catch it on ABC iView. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to catch this season yet, it is I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud of what we've been doing and uh, where the show has developed. And I would love it to keep going. Uh, and the best way for it to keep going is it to obviously have a lot of downloads on iView, have a lot of people watch it on the TV. So if you could spread the word, uh, watch the clips online, share them around, um, I would love if you would do that. Uh, that would be really brilliant and fantastic. Thank you very much. And if you would like to come and see me do one of my improvised shows, What You Talking About, Will, man, I've been having a lovely little run of these at the Sydney Comedy Store and then in Newcastle at the Newcastle Comedy Club. Loved every single one of these shows and I'm doing some more of them. So uh, the next one up is Wynnum Fringe. That's Queensland. So uh, the Wynnum Fringe, there's only genuinely a handful of tickets left for that. So you've got to get in very quick. Comedy.com.au. That is the 18th on a Saturday night at the Wynnum Fringe. And then after that, uh, I am back at the Sydney Comedy Store, December the 2nd, I think it is, December the 2nd, doing What You're Talking About, Will, at the Sydney Comedy Store. I would love to see you all there for that. That's going to be a really fun day. And then I've got another Sydney show in January and a run of three more shows at the Newcastle Comedy Club in January as well. But I will warn you, one of those is already sold out and one is about to sell out, so it's only a small room. It only holds 90. It's brilliant for these shows. Uh, if you want to come and see me in January at the Newcastle Comedy Club, I do urge you to get in as quickly as possible. All right. That's the plugs. Sorry I'm back doing some plugs, but I needed to do some plugs. Uh, in return, you've got a brilliant episode of Philosophy here with the wonderful Anne Edmonds, and I hope you enjoy it very much. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So who are you? Um, I am Anne Edmonds and um, I'm a comedian. Hello, Anne Edmonds, comedian. <laughs> <laughs> that was like you were doing a deposition yeah, or something. Yeah. Isn't that real... what this is? No, yeah, no, it's a comedy deposition. <laughs> if you can just admit to all the comedy co it. crimes you've committed. Yeah, the, embez <laughs> the embezzlement. As if I'd be smart enough to embezzle. I always look at that and go, how did they work that out? I'd love to I embezzle. Mean, how are you with finances? Oh, are you a Terrible. Mm. Yeah. Like most comedians, I think. Although there are some that are good at it, but I'm just not. I just can't. Like I don't, I don't have, there's a bank account I've got and I've lost the password. <laughs> and they've said, they said, come and bring your passport into the bank. And mm. I just thought, as soon as she said that, I thought, I'm never, That's I'm never, never going to ask this account again. <laughs> <laughs> I just need to, I need to write it off. And it's the joint account with Lloyd's, who, who's far more organised than me, Lloyd, my partner, who's also a comedian. He's pretty organised. 
And um, oh, okay. I just so haven't that, even told good. him that I haven't got access well, to that. Well, that's okay though because like that's a partnership because I was – I did think about that when you said like most comedians not particularly good with money and when you marry into mm. like another comedian, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, is that a recipe for disaster? But he is able to like yeah. balance out something there that you – like he'll remember the password at the very least or, be, yeah. or he'd go into the bank with the password he would, if, like, if he not. Actually, he, he has problems and acts on them. Whereas I have mm. problems that go, oh, oh, God, oh, oh well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm interested in that, though, like that approach to, like, how did comedy come into your life? Did you, were you the sort of person who always wanted to be a comedian? Or no, not at all. I don't know. And I often struggle with the question, you know, when mm. people say to you, who are your comedy influences and stuff? Because I don't see myself as a comedy fan. You know, there's a whole generation now of comedians who who are comedy fans who know about comedy, and I don't feel like that at all. Like, I don't want to see comedy in my spare time. <laughs> <laughs> so I got into it late, like 29. I was 29, and I had normal jobs and went to uni up until then, and then I finally, yeah, I did an open, I did something in, I was living in Darwin, I did sketches in Darwin, and I went, oh, and literally moved back to Melbourne Moved in with my back in with my parents, did raw comedy, did the open mics at the age of thirty. Mm. Did you have any hesitation? I, t- I speak to some people who started later. Like, mm. you know, you talk about that young generation of comedy fans who then, like, decide that they need to be, like, 15 years old and get their parents to drive them to yeah. gigs and stuff because, like, it's never too early to start. Yeah. And – Look, there's some brilliant comedians yeah. who came out of that pathway. It's sure. There's no one way of doing it. But mm. this idea of coming it to it a little bit later with a little bit of life lived, do you mm. feel like that's been an advantage in the long run? I th- well, for me it's more that how, mm. I mean I was insecure enough when I was 30 mm. and not really in control of myself and still aren't. But, you know, I'm getting better. I'm a mum now, but still – the thought of doing it at 20 when I was even worse in terms of like didn't know who I was, didn't know, you know, like had no like no grip on the world except to get drunk Thursday <laughs> through to Sunday. Like, do you know what I mean? I mean like I don't. It would have I, enabled that though. I mean, yeah. if you want to get drunk Thursday <laughs> yeah. through to Sunday. Or Tuesday through to comedy, Sunday. Yeah, Monday through to Sunday. <laughs> yeah, true. And I did do that when I was 30. Mm. But I just feel like, I don't know, like I don't know how they're in con- – I don't know how they know what they want at the age of 20. You know, I see them and go, wow, they know they want to be a comedian. They've got clips. They're making clips. They're putting them up. I'm like still – that's what, that, what that's what astounds me about that. Yeah. Well, what were you doing at age 20? Take us back to Anne Edmonds at age 20 and what her life looked like. I think I was still trying to finish my arts degree, which I did. I did eventually. It took me five years to finish that arts degree. Like Where I had, were you studying? At Melbourne Uni. Yeah. Mm. I'm the alumni of Melbourne Uni no one wants to talk about. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like Ronnie's on the front of all their magazines and stuff. <laughs> it's like, I went there too and everyone's like, mm, sh- keep, shut up. Like... <laughs> That's the problem with going to Melbourne Uni, mate. If you're going to Canberra Uni like me, it's just like me and George Gregan. They're like. <laughs> yeah, they've got too many. They've got like Rob Sitch and they've got, yeah, yeah Tom Gleisner. But I'm, I'm, I'm alumni. But anyway, but I couldn't even deal. Like the, the course load for arts was six hours a week or something mm. and I had to go part Too much. Too much. <laughs> and I don't know what I was doing. I was really just, I went to a Catholic girls school, 
you know, in Essendon. And then I arrived at uni and just, just got on it, just drank, just really, don't know, don't know. And, and stuck and hung around still, like sort of made friends at uni, but still hung around with my Essendon bogan mates Mm -hmm. and just continued on the, the Thursday, Friday, Saturday night party train in Essendon, like at the Cactus Nightclub <laughs> with the likes of Adam Rosenbach. <laughs> <laughs> so how did um, like an arts degree at Melbourne University, mm. what was that in aid of, did you think? Like did you think at the time? Like, like mm. was there a plan? Was it like I'm going to go to Melbourne Uni and study arts and that is going to lead to dot, 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 or was it just it was in place of a plan? Yeah, there was no Mm. plan whatsoever. I did, yeah, I finished year 12 and went, I think my mum encouraged me to do an arts degree. Um, I can't believe I I tried to drop out of school in year 11 and um, I didn't, but I finished year 12 anyway. And then mum said, do an arts degree. It's a good thing to do. So I did it. And I guess... I don't know where I was going. I then got a job at the university in admin mm. and I just did that for ages. You were like, well, I guess here? Like, <laughs> can I just stay here? Have you got any jobs going? Pretty much. And then just started getting drunk with those people. Yeah. You know, I feel like that's <laughs> 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 And then eventually found a – then I met a, my first mm. boyfriend around the age of about 24 maybe. Right. And I think I was still working at the university then, yeah. But he was off campus. You met someone off campus. Yeah, you he met, was off you campus. You expanded your world. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. And right. then, yeah, and then we went from there. So that was, so I don't know. like five-year arts degree, mm. it's funny. I was just talking to Ed Cavalier and he was talking about the idea that, you know, his three-year arts degree went for five years as well. But for him it was mostly because he threw himself into theatre sports and like the art scene and all these sort of yeah. things that he was doing. You weren't, like, involved in the, like, nah. university reviews or any of the things that, like, nah. you know, none of that stuff. I, I remember trying. Like, I remember going mm. to put my name down on lists at the theatre and then there was – they had never heard from them again, so I just went, oh, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what I was doing. I was just a little bit – just having a good time, I think. Mm. Mm. It's fun. So, so like, what, it's a fun age. Yeah. Well, fun's – like, I mean, and there is something to be said about the idea that because you think that you will have time to have that fun again and yeah. maybe you did like at age 30 when yeah, you started did, being yeah. a comedian again, you had another mm. crack at it. But mm. you kind of only get to be 19, 20, 21 yeah. like once in your life really. Yeah. Like a know-it-all dipshit kind of – Yeah. Oh, Yes. Like I knowing know. everything. Remember when you knew everything? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you had like really, I had very, um, you know, very simplistic political views mm. and, you know, like I was very, you know, all of that. That was it's nice actually just to be that clear cut about things. For that. things to be black and white, for things to be simple, mm. for you, to, to see the world without all its greys and complexities and yeah. like like I had losses a shaved and head. hurts. Oh, really? Yeah, at one point I did, and I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, man, this is something. Like, what? Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> vote green. What? What are you talking about? Like, <laughs> your head's shaved, are oh, you? Yeah. I don't know. The, like, <laughs> the pamphlet came with the haircut, yeah. you know? There's two ways you can go with a shaved head. You took the good one. Yeah. So. <laughs> I hope. Yeah, I did. I did. 
Yeah. Uh, okay. So you you weren't really even looking for yourself at this stage then, is that? Um, I would, or I would, you were? No, I mean, you were I'd, trying to try on identities? Probably. I'd definitely describe myself as a lost, probably a lost soul a bit. Like okay. I was pretty, you know, like it's an, also a very confronting time when you're that age because it's like, what do I, what am I? Like you go, you know, in school you're sort of, although I was very misbehaved at school, um, you know, I was in a lot of trouble at school. And then... What sort of trouble would you get in at school? Um, classic, you know, attention-seeking, uh-huh. um, you know, hanging out the window, hiding hiding in cupboards, on the roof, <laughs> wagging, that kind of thing, you know, the classics. <laughs> yeah, sure. Like if, you know, it's, people ask you when you're a comedian mm. if you were the class clown, mm. I'm actually one of the ones that has to go, yeah. Yeah. Like I was... <laughs> If oh, you consider hiding in a cupboard the height of clownery, yeah. then yes, that was my genius. <laughs> Peekaboo. Um, yeah, no, I was doing all that shit. Mm. Like I was, yeah, and I was, I wasn't interested in the work really. I, I and I liked to cause trouble, and I liked, like, I tried to leave school in year eleven to become a apprentice baker, like stuff like that. You know, I just wanted to. I don't know what I was doing. And my parents were just pulling their hair out, I think. Um, but I just was bored, I think, most of the time. But I must have pulled it together enough in year 12 to pass year 12. don't really remember. It's a bit of a blur. I mean, arts at Melbourne Uni, like, has a decent enough yeah. entrance score. So you must have done okay. I must have done, <laughs> must have done something, yeah. What were you good at? Like, what? Like, did you have, like, good comprehension? Were you good yeah. at, like, the humanities and language and those sort of things? Or you, have you got, like, a secret maths and science nah, man? No, like, I was good at English and writing mm. and things like that. Like, yeah, like literature, writing, art. They were my areas. Yeah. And I had a very good English teacher who, Miss O'Hare, who saved me a bit, who I failed year 11 English from memory for not submitting work. Because I, I, and I did that in uni as well. I often just got to like the, the ninth hour and just went, I'll just fail it. Like that seemed like a reasonable option to me. I was like, mm. I could do this work tonight mm. or I could just fail this. I could just not do yeah. it and fail, I guess. <laughs> What's just the worst stupid. thing that could happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, you just have to do it again. Or, yeah. So I didn't, uh, yeah, but, and then she, she really mentored me and said, you're, you're a good writer and you you know, and got me through, I think, a lot of it. Because you need a teacher that does that, that goes, you're all right. Even though you're naughty, you're, you're all right. She Have you had that. the opportunity to tell her that? Like, did you ever get the opportunity to, like, you know, let her know that? Yeah, I've seen her. She came to, mm. I just did a musical and I was coming out of the um, office with my, my office, dressing room <laughs> in my wig and, like, undies, and she was standing there, like, you know. <laughs> And I was like, oh, she's like, I'm so proud of you. And I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> and she's, she's got my ride, you know, she's still got my riding and things. So that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, mm. oh that's, a, that's great. Yeah. She was amazing. Yeah. Catholic girls school is mm. m- pretty good, actually. Like I know it gets a bad rap, but in terms of, as a, I reckon as a female, it's not a, it's a pretty good education system for women. Uh, this is, I mean, this is the thing about like education in general, right? Like is that there's like, I mean, people always argue is co-educational yeah. better than same sex. Mm. And what they're forgetting is that there's actually three credit categories, which yeah. is women going to school with women, girls going to school with girls is 100% better for oh, girls. Co-ed so second, but boys 
with other boys, yeah. terrible for everyone. Yeah, like yeah, the yeah. The ramifications that has. <laughs> like women should be able to go to same-sex schools. Yes. Guys should not be able to. They should have to be. Yeah, but who are the women that have to like suffer it? That's the problem. Make it cheaper. Yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something. But I don't want to. I'm glad I wasn't one of them because uh, I could barely deal with boys when I was 19 and uni. Like, well, maybe that was because I went to a Catholic girls' yeah. school, but. That's part of it probably. That's the downside, yeah. right, is that you're not around them all the time. So yeah. eventually when you are, when you're released, there's always – they talk about, you know, animals that are raised in – like there was a few years back there were these bears that had been raised in captivity yeah. and there was a huge – um, like a petition by environmentalists to get these bears released back into the wild and uh -huh. they got them released back into the wild and then they were immediately murdered by other bears because <laughs> <laughs> they had no, no survival skill. yeah. skills. Yeah. You know. That's a bit like me at uni, mm. yeah. Mm. <laughs> a, bear. <laughs> a bear wandering out with a, with a VB in their paw. <laughs> so was drinking part of your life early on? Like, yeah. I mean, you talk about, you've mentioned drinking and mm -hmm. I, like, I know that we've, you've spoken, you know, about when you first started doing comedy drinking a lot as mm. well. Like, was it, were you uh, like a teenage, were you yep. a teen drinker or was it like a uni thing? No, I'm from the classic mm. Australian suburbs of yeah. as soon as you're 14, find a way to get a Strombow down mm. your gullet. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so that was, you know. Um, yeah, like I was sneaking out of home and drinking in parks by the age of about 15. I yeah. was smoking as well, like when, uh, Benson Hedges, stealing mm -hmm. them off my mum and smoking them. Yeah, like I'm from that kind of world of where alcohol was, that's what you did. Like that's your weekends was just working towards Friday, getting drunk or Thursday at uni it was. Yeah. So yeah, big drinking culture for sure. Mm. And then you land at university mm. where like, I mean, particularly in that period of time, I wonder if it's probably changed these days because of mm. like some of the social responsibility of it all. But maybe, like, yeah. University was essentially, I mean, I remember my first, literally first night of O week at uni, I was living on campus and I remember like we were wandering to some pub that was like, you know, near the university and I have like, like, you know, passed out in some bushes yeah, of course, and yeah. just woken up in my bed like you know someone had yep. like got me back put me to bed and I was like this is a bad lesson to teach someone that you can just pass out wherever and you'll be right but it's that you was in the good culture stead, though right <laughs> it was set up for that yeah though, wasn't I know it? it was like there was a lot of that culture that was you get there and now you're at the drinking olympics totally and it's all yeah I mean you, you might be right perhaps it's completely changed because I don't know how they condone it now but mm. totally pub crawls and like how drunk can you get like, you know, and, and all those, all those stories, those, like that one you just described, they become like legend, you know, they become like things that everybody's telling each other and, you know, sort of legendary status type stories, don't they? It's, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting culture, really. Well, I mean, you've essentially got a whole bunch of people who are trying to work out who they are yes. as adults out of their family home together. Yeah. And I think yeah. the easiest way for everybody to deal with that situation is to like completely get out of their mind on some sort of yeah. like substance, right? Yeah. So what, how did you feel about like who you were at that time? Mm. Like, I mean, you were trying to find an identity, but how yeah. did you feel? Yeah. I think I was, um, I, I reckon I was having probably my first mm. sort of run-ins with 
depression and anxiety, which of course I'm a comedian, so I've had those throughout, you know, the last whatever it's No, been. no, you're the one. <laughs> oh, there's no others. <laughs> Just you. No, no, we all talk about it all the time. <laughs> it's weird how the rest of us are so like, like together and got together. our shit together. Yeah, and, yeah. So I yeah. remember that. I remember having my first kind of instances of like, oh, like what's the, what what's, I mean, the alcohol wouldn't have helped as well, mm. but like, um, you know, of, you know, getting da- really down and really kind of um, anxious and depressed and not, and yeah, and a sense of, which was such a waste of time back then, but a sense of what am I going to do with my life? And, you know, wh- who am I? What am I, what am I going to be? And all that kind of crap that I should have just, who cares? Like, you don't realize at that age, you've got, you've got years to work it out, but you think it's urgent about what you're going to be and who you're going to be kind of thing. But that is what we're taught as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. from I, I mean, maybe it's again different for d- different generations mm. because you know, kids these days, like statistically, you're going to have a whole bunch of jobs in your life. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That that is just yeah, the way true. the world works mm. now. But like, I remember just like from the age of, I mean, I don't know what age we started asking kids, like, what, what do you, you want to be do? when you grow yeah. up? What are you going to do when you finish? Mm. Which is just such a mm. ridiculous question and pressure to be putting on like kids like I mean I just think I mean again I'm not a parent so it's very easy to give parenting advice when you're not a parent (laughs) but I just wonder how much better our society would be if we said to like you don't have to get this mark to like be something in particular yes yeah if you if you learn how to do this it will give you more options yeah when you're older you will get more options. Yes. Here's a whole bunch of things that we can teach you or qualifications we can give you or whatever it might be. Yeah. And then you'll have more options. Yeah. You don't have to decide right now no. what you want to do. Yeah. Just here's some things that will give you some options. Yeah. And I think that's that's a nice thing about an arts degree at least mm. is it's not a lock-in. Like there were kids my age doing physio. I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> you fucked it. You're <laughs> be cracking backs by the time you're 22. <laughs> but, you know, like I had, yeah, but no, but it was there. It's like one of a, you know, how am I going to make, how am I going to make an impact on the world is a question I think you're, you're confronted with at that age. And you're like, oh, I don't know, another, another drink. <laughs> yeah. Did, did you think that the idea of how am I going to make an impact on the world was an important question to be tackling? I think so. I think I was, yeah, I think I was, yeah, I think I didn't know what to do with myself and I, you know, and I didn't quite know. I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what it was. And it actually, it didn't end up working it out till I was 30. So yeah, 20s were just a bit of like me going from office job or whatever to, to yeah, to not, and not quite knowing what to do with myself. I wouldn't go, I wouldn't have that, 20s yeah. again. Nah. I'd have 30s so, but, again, but not 20s. When you were doing those things, mm. was there always a sense of I'm like I am still looking yes. for something to do with my life? A hundred percent. And also, like, because mm. I was in, I was when I was nine to five in offices, I knew it was wrong. I was mm. like, this isn't right. Like, don't I mean, like I'm this. sure a lot of people feel like that, even that don't want to become comedians or something else. I just felt there was something fundamentally wrong with doing that. <laughs> like, it just didn't didn't seem right to me to be doing that with your life. I agree with you. I mean, I agree even as a comedian. Mm. Like I have jobs where a lot of the other people on the, like your TV shows and stuff, yeah. like a lot of the other people who work on it work in an office. Mm. And there's always the open invitation of, you know, we could, you could have, have a, a chair desk. or a room or a desk or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I've got <laughs> those things at home though. So, 
and I don't use them there. So why would I come in? And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. Yeah, I just didn't. I knew I was. I wanted to do something else. I always knew that, but I just didn't know what it was. It took me a while to find it. Mm. But I'm interested then in though that. 10 that you know let's say 10 years mm. like that that decade the mm. 20s the ones that you're like I could do without them yeah. again but if you took away the 20s mm. fast forward to the work that you do and mm. the characters that you draw and the way mm. that you paint the world how much of your palette came from those 20s yeah, like probably working a lot. in those office jobs and seeing those people and being able to like yeah. draw those characters and caricatures I think that's right yeah you do learn a lot about the well the re- you for you begin to forget about the rest of the world when you're a comedian. Mm. It's a bit sort of, it's too mm. much of a bubble. And you, um, yeah, it's nice to be able to draw back on, yeah, at least 20 years of, or 30 years of nonsense and suburban boganity, I guess you'd call it. I don't know. But yeah, like normal people that are out there and, and what they're doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're going to talk to an audience for a living, mm. it's good to have occasionally met that audience. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Hung out with them, know yeah. what they get up to. Yeah. And you can, you sort of drift away from that as you get deeper into comedy, sort of become a bit sort of insulated from it all. Mm. What uh, took you to Darwin? Uh, so my partner was working mm. with the ABC and we originally moved to Mount Gambia in South Australia for a couple of years. And then we moved to Darwin with his job. So we... We hopped around a bit. So that's, yeah, that was fun. I And I just would go, I just went along with it and got jobs wherever there were jobs and joined the netball teams and like, you know, learned to play music and did, did my own thing. But was quite happily dragged along to those places. Yeah. What was it like to... Because I grew up in the country, mm. like I grew up in small communities and then sort of moved to the city. Yeah. Whereas like you were a city girl, like Essendon, yeah. like inner suburbs, mm. you know, like of Melbourne. This is, mm. you know, like. I would argue though that back then the suburbs mm. of Melbourne were like very insulated. Partic- like I grew up in, yeah, Essendon, Strathmore kind of, in a ca- you know, with the Catholic church. We knew people from the church. You'd go to church. We went to church a lot. <laughs> okay. Or we, and, and, or we were involved in the school. I remember when I got into Melbourne Uni, my mum sitting me down with the Melways and going, this is Essendon, this is Carlton. And like, you know, we had to have a trial run of me getting from Essendon to Carlton, you know, on public transport and stuff. Because I really didn't leave that area. So yeah, right. I know it's not like that anymore, but to me it did mm. feel pretty, I know it's not a small town, but it did feel pretty insular and small to me, that yeah, area. It was, so, okay, that that is interesting mm. to me because like if you said to me Essendon and Carlton, they might as well be neighbouring suburbs. <laughs> like, <laughs> it wasn't for me. It was a big deal. Okay, yeah. so that's that's interesting. Yeah. And the church obviously being a part of it yeah. as well. Were you like a subscriber to the whole church thing? You went a lot. Was it something that you believed in that you went like that you kind of had an appetite for? It was so ingrained that I don't mm. even know. It was just we did it every Sunday and I know, you know, and I knew the service back to front and I did all the – I went to a Catholic school and I did all the, the um, sacraments and I just – yeah, I don't know that I even ever thought. I probably, yeah, probably as I got into my late teens, I started going, thinking, what the hell is this? But up until then, it was just, you just went there and did that. I never thought there weren't, I didn't really think that there were people not doing that. There were, you know, 
other people. It's <laughs> just that's what we did kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, do, did you take part? Like I, I've talked about this before a bunch, which is, you know, my family were – well, actually my dad's um, – I, I would say he's an atheist, but that would imply that he at some stage made a decision about that. Yes, He yeah. literally just doesn't believe, mm-hmm. right? Like he just yeah. doesn't see the point of it. Mm. And my mum – I think she's probably still a little religious. No yeah. church involved these days, but I think there's like a kind of – but her mum mm. was was religious. Yeah, and yeah. so – but like Church of England. So, yeah. you know, like it's, it's it's not the, you know, the really full-on religion. Mm-hmm. But we would go to church regularly and like Sunday school and like, yeah. you know, Bible camp and all these sort of things that came along with it. Mm. And I loved – all the performance stuff. I would read things in church. I would love singing the yeah. hymns and like doing all this. Were you taking part in the performance oh, elements yeah, of it? Oh yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved it. And I was at a funeral just last week, I mm. think it was, and I was right back in there with the hymns and the singing and the, yeah, there's a lot of pomp, particularly in the Catholic church. There's a lot of ceremony and pomp and and also people on display, like, you know, getting a good look at people either when they're doing readings or like when they get up to go to get yeah. communion or whatever and what's everyone wearing, what's everyone doing. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. It's, yeah, I mean it was, yeah, like it was, I guess it was just part of what we did, yeah. Um, and it was, it wasn't like, I mean, I mean, obviously the Catholic Church has got a bad. Absolutely fine. Got yeah. an impeccable record. No, Never read anything bad about it. I think they've nailed it. I think they've one it. religion that absolutely nailed it from the start yeah. till now. I think we can all agree. <laughs> it was. Fu- it's funny because I've just been what rewatching Brides of Christ. Did you know oh, that yeah. that's on Stan? No, uh, but I, I can't wait to re-watch watch. Such a good rewatch. It holds up. But there is one point. I was literally in love with. That was like the. I was in love with every one of every the girls nun. on that show. Yeah. Literally every single one of them. Naomi Watts like, is in it. Yes, I know. Yeah. I know. I was a teenage boy having some very confused feelings about those nuns, those hot nuns. Hot nuns. Hot nun alert. Um, but I think it isn't about – it, it just amused me because I don't know which episode it was in. They were having some sort of philosophical discussion about the church and then one of the nuns said to the other nuns, you know, if we don't, if we don't adopt Vatican II and loosen up, we're going to lose all our followers and – and I was like, yeah, that happened anyway. Yep. <laughs> like they did they did kind of loosen mm. up and adopt all those rules and it's still they still blew it. Like they blew mm. it every which way. But anyway, for me it was the big the big thing about Catholic Church for me was it was all I would describe it as like um I don't even know what the word is. Like it's like very community based socialist kind of Catholic mm-hmm. vibe yep. is what I'd describe it as. Social justice that type of thing. Um, I mean, obviously. Yeah, there's a lot of that good aspect of the church that does come from like those roots and culturally yeah. comes from those roots. Did you go to confession? Oh, yeah. I remember doing that. Yeah. Confession with the priest in the room. And would you confess myself. actual things or would you make up nah, things I made to them confess? Up. Just, yeah. you, you just go in with your standard. I think and I went in mm. with the same. I'd always say I swore at my mum and then I threw yeah. something over the fence. I was always, <laughs> yeah, through. <laughs> <laughs> through so-and-so's thing over the fence. It's like, oh, yeah, go and whack out a few Hail Marys. Like, thanks. But, yeah, like in hindsight, yeah, that's when the church was modernising and you didn't go in that weird confession box anymore that was like you and the priest separated. They sent you into a small room, like one-on-one. I'm like, oh, I think the box was safer. I was going to say, that's not better. Yeah. 
No. But anyway, all good. And So, um, well, did you, like, was there a point where, I mean, was there, like, I mean, religion in general, like, have you kept some of that or there was a point where you just went, this is nonsense or have you kept some of it as part of your belief system? Oh, or definitely like, in there for sure. Mm. Like, you know, it's, I guess it's, I mean, the core belief would be what's happened, what's going on with other people besides yourself would be the, would be the main thing that you, is drummed into you to the point of sometimes, you know, in guilt, you know, the guilt thing in the church is huge. Like what, what have you got that other people? you know, what privileges and do you have that no one else has or, you know, the starving children in Africa classic thing. But I think fundamentally that's what I took you take with you is, is it, what suffer what suffering can you see? Which can, you know, I guess you could argue what suffering can you see and what are you going to do about it? Um, or do you just see it and go, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. They seem to be suffering. Yeah, <laughs> suffering going on over there. But yeah, that's that's what I would have taken with me. And also probably still a belief in, in heaven yeah, as a concept. Still. Yeah. That hangs around. Yeah. Okay. Just because and, my well, yeah. you know, my grand particularly my grandmother was mm-hmm. extremely religious, Catholic. And then she and I was very close to her and she died. And to me that's still where she would be in the world is in heaven. I can't and I can't sort of move on from that. There's sort of like a, that's where they, that's where they go and that's where they are. Whatever that means. I don't like the, um, go into the ground for a rot. And I reckon as you get closer to death, you're probably, you're looking for a different angle than just a bit of a a nothingness in the ground rot. So I'm interested in that because Mm. like, I... Like, I mean, part of the reason I do this podcast is I like to hear what people think about that. Like, mm. you know, like, because I think that what you think happens when we die, like, informs a lot of, yeah. like, how how you look at the world and yeah, life yeah, and what yeah. it's all about. And, mm. you know, I, I think probably, you know, like, my general vibe is that, you know, we came from nothing, we go back to nothing. Yeah, okay. But when I think of my grandmother mm. and her belief in heaven, yeah, I, there is part of me that's like, I hope you get what you believe in. Well, that's like, true. That's what I would love. Yes, like if she yeah. believes in heaven and that's how she lived her life, I hope that's what she gets. Yeah. I don't need to go to heaven. I've done too many dodgy shit things <laughs> to like be hanging out in heaven. People would always be like, we saw you masturbate or whatever. Like, you know, I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to, you know. But do you but, really want to go back for just, you're, just gonna, you're happy to pop into the earth for a nothingness? Yeah. You're looking for, you sound like you're looking got, forward to it. Keen. Can't wait. <laughs> Can't wait. Every night when I close my eyes, I'm like, maybe tonight's the night. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I'm sort of of the I'm of, I'm in the heaven um I'm in the heaven band camp. Band now, are you, well, I mean, are you like heaven is a concept, but not like Strictly, I'm going to live my life following no, the rules no, that no. get me in. Yeah, so probably best of both mm. worlds because I don't mm. actually have to follow any of the mm. stuff that gets yeah. you to heaven. But I like the thought of, I like the thought of a sit round mm. on a cloud up there. That's how I've mm. always seen it. I always yeah. remember as a kid, of, of, and, and to me, it's like a haven. You know, mm. it's like, you know, when I used to get upset as a kid, I'd be like, oh, you know, I'd like to be in heaven on a cloud. To me, that feels like a, you know. A, a nice place to be. Yeah. That's where people end up that don't have any problems anymore. Yeah, I get that. And clouds mm. do seem Yeah, comfy. spongy. 
right? <laughs> just, there is something. I mean, technically, again, if you bring science into ah. it, like, but the, you know, yeah. but they wouldn't be comfortable at all. But no. like our idea of them, yeah, I like the idea, and I, I like. I don't think that there is anything to like. I don't want to spoil someone's idea that like you know something nice happens to mm. you after you die or whatever. Yeah, has, yeah. Has having a child affected the way that you think about like life? And, yeah. I mean, of course it does, but yeah, like yeah, death yeah. in particular, like do, mm. is it, does it become more omnipresent? Are you just like much more aware of both your mortality and obviously the mortality of like Lloyd and your child and like these sort of things? Is that, does it become more present? Yes. Well, I, and it was interesting because as I was talking about clouds then, my daughter mm. loves clouds, Gwen. She, she, she loves nothing more than a bag of um, cotton wool and she like uh-huh. she calls them clouds and she like rubs them on her face it says cloud anyway um, <laughs> so she knows she knows they're she comfortable she yeah. gets it <laughs> but yes in answer to your question the yeah. first year of my daughter's life was the most terrifying con- like confronting like the thought that you you know that you that your kid might die is one of the most terrifying things that can reduce you to a person <laughs> that you, you, yeah, like, and also, yeah, and the need for you not to die becomes suddenly very, very important to, because of, you know, they need you so much. So yeah, I, death for me became huge, like in that first year, probably unhealthily. So if I went looking back now, I became like, and I mean, I'm I'm not alone in this, but I became fixated on danger and I did a bit about it in my show that I just did where you just constantly got a voice in your head just telling you how, the million ways in which your kid could die, basically. Like, and it's, we're talking about, you're responsible for like something, Gwen was born like 2.5 kilograms, which is small. She was this little tiny yeah. person that I had to. But they're all small. They're all like, small. They're, they're, they all come out underdone. Yeah. Like you're like, yeah, this yeah, is not yeah. ready. You should be like, this should stay in for a bit longer yeah. before it's my responsibility. It's the, the responsibility of it is mm. profound and like, the, and the most incredible thing I've ever experienced. But the terror was unbelievable. Yeah. And still, of course it's still there, but it's, e- it's easing off as she becomes more robust and, and and I guess it's like comedy, right? It's like, you know, the first few times that you bomb, it's the end of your life and your spiral. And, and then as you bomb for 10 years, you go, ah, oh, it's a bomb. Mm. So it's like that and learning that It again. happens. It's, it's part of the kid. process. Yeah. I'm going to fuck things up as a parent. Yeah. And yes. the first time I do, it feels like, oh, my oh. God, I'm going to be a terrible parent. I'm yeah. never going to be able to do this. I've made a hideous mistake. Yeah. But the more you do it, you just think, oh, well, yeah. that's like, I mean, you know what? Occasionally you drop them on the head. Well, you know? part of the tapestry. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, I am interested in that, though. You mentioned the show and the fact that you talked about yeah. it in the show. I saw um, that show. It's mm. a fucking amazing show, by the way. No, it was thanks. like such a beautiful piece of stand-up comedy. Like it was just <laughs> – I thought it was just the absolute – I mean, you like everyone would know that you your character – work is you know you quite famously you've done a whole bunch of mm. you know like these characters that have like mm. you know been I, I, I like have been painted in you know various like dialed up to 11 or 12 yes. often, yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. but to see you incorporate that like character work so naturally into like a stand-up show for me as someone who has always probably loved stand-up a little more than i've loved character stuff yeah, to yeah, see yeah. it just incorporated i just thought it was 
It was beautiful to watch. Like oh, it was genuinely you, inspiring nice. to me. Mm. And uh, but I am very interested in that idea of you know that it does mean that you have to be here. So yeah, you totally. had this. Combin- like I think there's a part of you that you've talked about that lives has lived your life occasionally in like semi-destructive ways yes. or at least not uh, yeah. not worried so much about the fact that you have to be around in, you know, 30 years or 40 years. Uh, and then you like as you talk about in the show, you have like a geriatric pregnancy, they mm-hmm. call it. Is that what – that's the term, right? I Is think that that's what you one say? of the terms. That's yeah, one I of call, the terms. I, I like, call myself a little late-in-life yeah. mother. Yeah. Late-in-life mum, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, not that uncommon these days, mm. but something that like still you're just a little late in your life, yeah. right? So th- did it like not just the baby, like not just the fact that you have to keep Gwen alive, but mm. this idea that suddenly there is a higher value on your yes. life that you have to not just look after this child, but you have to maybe look after yeah. Anne a little more than you've been looking after Anne. Yeah. Was that something that was also present? I think so. I mean, I think from – I got pregnant at 42, which was a miracle really, like in, you know, in, in many ways. Um, and I think, yeah, like I think that becoming a mum has definitely removed a lot of the self – I mean, I've still got it. I've still got that urge to um, – it's a, it's a, I don't know, Nick, Nick Cody would call it a loose unit. I don't know, mm. like it's just a bit of <laughs> yeah. looseness where you suddenly just want to do impulsive, mm. crazy things. Um, but um, it's def, yeah, become, well, there's a few things that have happened. The, f- the main one is that I'm really happy, which, you know, I probably couldn't have said that right up until, ha- I mean, meeting Lloyd, yes. But through my 30s, I would never have said I was happy. Like, so I would say I was sort of like, in, a, in as you are as a comedian, in waves of like euphoria and then um, despair and, you know, you know what a comedy trajectory is like. You know, it's up and down and crazy. I would say now that I've got Gwen, I'm just got purpose and happy, just happy. I love that kid. I love being a mum. Like I can't, I, I just think it's the most magical thing that's ever happened. I just love it. Was it something that you had thought wasn't going to yep. happen? Cause totally. Like I was 30, I think I was 38, 39 and I thought I was done. Like I, you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't like, I was, it was really sad, but I, I, you know, I didn't, you know, as a modern woman, you do know you've got other options and you're like, okay, I'll travel and I'll focus on my career or whatever it is. But yeah, I thought that had, had gone from that possibility was just about off the table for sure. So for me, it's like, it's the best. It's like a miracle for me. Yeah. And I love it. It it feels, it's funny, isn't it? There's such a story of not knowing when things are going to happen. Like, you know, you don't become a comedian until you're 30. You don't become a mother until you're in your 40s. Like these things that sometimes people are rushing so quickly to work out what is my life going to look like. You know, sometimes you've just got to, you know, realize that it'll come when it comes yeah. or it might not ever come and that's okay too. But yeah, that it, yeah, that it just, just cause it isn't done by 25 doesn't mean. No, not at all. 25 is nothing. Yeah. yeah. I would say that that's how I've lived my life is pretty much just let's have a go. I think it's important to remember that you know nothing really and you're just scrambling along and then one day you'll, it'll fall in. I've always had a hope it'd fall into place. That's the best you can do really. 
<laughs> so I ask people on this podcast if they have a life philosophy. Is mm. that what you would say your life philosophy is? Probably. Just yeah. Remember that you know nothing in a good way. Like it's good. Yeah. Like I re- I recently did a musical, like a theatre Theatre for the first Bloom. time. Bloom. Tom Gleisner wrote mm. this musical. It's called Bloom. It's set in an, a nursing home, home, right? An aged care home, yeah. Yeah. And I just, you know, and it's, what age am I now? 44. And I just, I love that. I love that you just, I like to just keep it loose and just be like, I'll learn this now. Why not? Like have a, like, yeah, I don't like to keep, I like to just see what happens. Is there a fear of failure that comes with that though? I mean, when mm. you're attempting something you haven't done before. I mean, like, again, it's not like you haven't acted, created characters, mm. like mm. sung, like all these skills that you will need for yeah. this. You didn't have to learn how to do those all those things. You no. just needed to combine them in a different way, in a different structure. But, but it still is a different structure. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I've just grown to – I think you learn to love – Learn to love failure as a comedian, and the as I said earlier, the first the first few years of it are, are horrific, and you know, and every time you fail, you think you're going to quit, and you know, you're just like I can't do this. How am I going to keep doing this? And then you do it again, it goes well, and ping pong, ping pong. But I just think like it's become. I like the failure now. It's like it's a good feeling. It's like what can you do to yourself to like push yourself to the limit over the edge. I'm still into that. Like, even though I'm a mum now and stuff, but I'm still into that. That I've still got that urge to like experiment and like see how we can, you know, push yourself. How do you know what's good failure and what's just failure? I think if <laughs> I think if you've I think if you tried and well, most of the, I mean, this is the good thing about our jobs, right? Is that you you get more than one go. It's at the nature of the job, isn't it? To fail one night. And then have to drag yourself somehow. Like, how can I do this? How can I get there again? And then you don't fail. So, I don't know. Like, I think, I don't know that there is any bad failure, really. There's only, the only bad failure comes from other people knocking you back or, you know, that kind of stuff. That's, I find that, I find that in comedy quite difficult. Like, I like, I like doing my own thing, but when I get involved with TV and other things where there's people that can say yes or no to what you're doing, then I start to, that's when I start to get depressed or like pissed off with the whole thing is, is that, is that kind of stuff. Mm. When, so when what, when people can't see the, what you're trying to do or that they have no trust in you or that you think that you have to. Well, fit I into just, other people's expectations. I like think, what, what Yeah, is I mean, it? thinking. Pi- pi- I think pitching stuff that you've mm. sort of know is good, and you've <laughs> you've had a yeah. response to as as a comedian on stage, and then pitching it up the chain to people. And now it's never been more difficult, you know, because everyone we're pitching up the chain is these days. It's if it's not the ABC, it's someone sitting in an office in America somewhere, you know, that's got control over the funding for Australia. Or whatever it is, trying to convince them that you know, you know what you've got is good, like is funny. You've done it. You've shown people, and they're like, "Yeah, but is it that?" Guy? And that's when I, that's when I start to get frustrated with comedy and the comedy industry. I guess, yeah. I, okay, so well, I mean, it's interesting to have that perspective. Mm. I mean, because sometimes, like, I mean, I'll have some young comedian ask me about like the comedy industry, and I'm like. I don't really know anything to tell you. I mean, the one thing I could tell you is 
that no one's ever done so badly that everyone in the comedy industry got together and said, you can never do this again. <laughs> They'll always give you a second shot. So yeah, yeah. no matter how bad you fuck up, there is an opportunity for a second shot. Mm. But the actual industry itself, because you end up in a little cocoon of your own, mm, right? Mm. Like I know my world's quite well, but I don't necessarily mm. know what the industry looks like. I yeah. don't necessarily know what it feels like to be in one of those meetings where – like most of the time when I tell someone that I think something's going to be funny or good, they mm. generally kind of trust me. Yeah, like, you know, good. mostly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, mm. like in a general sense. I'm yeah. not saying 100% strike rate or anything, but yeah. like, you know, you kind of get to that point. And so what is it like when you as a – like a creative person, mm. like a person who's not, not just created things but also shown that those – non-traditional creations because that's what I'd say about like some, yes. what you've done. Like often what I've done is just come along and done a different version of something that's already exists, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm like that burger but I have like a pickle <laughs> like or whatever. But, yeah, you know, yeah. people still recognise it as a burger, yes. right? Whereas sometimes you've come along and gone, no, nah, I've deconstructed the whole thing. Yeah. There's no bread. There's eight pickles. <laughs> you know, <what> I mean? <laughs> but then people eat it and they go, "This is the the greatest thing I've ever like eaten in my life. I love it." But it just is not recognisable as a burger to this person in a room in America. Like, what is it like when you're like, "I know this is." Yeah, I know. I know this is something. Yeah. And not do I just know intellectually it is, but I've. Got proof of concept. Yeah, I've done it. it. And other people have also gone, you know what? That yeah. is actually a thing. And then someone sort of looks at it and goes, I'm not sure that is a thing. Yeah. What's, what does that feel it's, like? It's hard to because I think it's it's rejection, right, which is one of the hardest things to deal with. And it's, you know, and I think there's probably, there's probably people who can just keep pitching and going and going and going. And they're possibly the people that shouldn't be making comedy. Yeah. But they're, yeah, from someone like me, it's like, oh, like, yeah, I, I struggle with it. And I, I like get hurt and I get, yeah, you know, and I, like I come out of it again, but you can get bitter and you can get like angry and like, you know, like frustrated at, at, at everything. And then, and I always come good because I think, you know, the way back always as a comedian is through via the audience. Like they'll always redeem you from every kind of, you know, um, low point is getting back on stage and saying an idea that, I mean, there's no other, there's no greater profession for saying an idea out of, that's just arrived out of and saying it out of your mouth and people laughing. And then you go, oh yeah, yeah, I'm back. This is, this is comedy in its purest form here. Like you can't argue with this. So yeah, I go, you know, you sort of go through, but yeah, I would say it hurts like it hurts like rejection. And I wish I was, I wish I was a more of a grown, I wish I was more of a sort of slick LA person that pitches their thing. You know, you hear those stories that people pitch their thing 28 times for seven years and we're like, yeah, it's, yep, that's fine. I'll pitch it again. I'll pitch it again. But I take it, I take it hard. I take it personally and yeah, but maybe people just aren't admitting it that that's how it feels. I don't know, but that's how it feels to me. No, I understand. I absolutely understand that. So you're, you, so you, like you, we mentioned Bloom and like you're suddenly in this environment, like, you know, doing this musical, mm. like talk to me about what that experience was like differently to, I mean, cause part of your character from what I read in the review, like mm. the reviews and description of the show, there was a comedic aspect to the character yes. that you were playing in yeah. it still, but what's it like, you know, 
performing in that way and particularly like I'm really interested in I'll give you an example of what I mean so I went and saw I've never read a Harry Potter book never watched the movies oh, yeah. but I was invited um one year to see that big Harry Potter play that they were doing at the Princess Theatre in Melbourne. Oh, you know, yeah, they converted yeah, yeah. the whole theatre yes. and they did that. Like it was a two-part play. Mm. It was like a whole thing. And I went and I honestly thought it was one of the most magical nights of anything I've ever seen in my life. I loved it. And on the first night I went, the audience were amazing. And like so every – like it's not a comedic play but there are comedic moments and every one of them hit. Like the audience loved them all. I was like, how good's this? I loved it so much that I took someone else to go and see it. I was like, I'm, I'm going to take you to go and see it. All the other bits worked but this night the audience weren't into the yeah, comedy. Yeah, so yeah. the comedy wasn't landing, We're which familiar was fine with that. because they don't need to – like it doesn't need yes. to for the sake of it. Yeah, yeah. But if you're a comedian, what I was sitting there thinking was, if this was my show, mm. I'd change gears or I'd yeah. like do something different mm. or I'd like perform it in a different way. But I was re- kind of realised they're kind of stuck yes. doing this because somebody else's line comes off their line. They kind <laughs> yeah. of suddenly can't like. So what? What did you have like experiences like that doing? Um. Doing Bloom, or was it pretty consistently like you know reliable that this is the laugh line? They're all going to laugh here, and this will be the connection. Or well, I'd say the most difficult point of part of it for me was the six weeks of rehearsal with uh-huh. no audience, which for a comedian is yeah like torturous, and and we never operate that way. We the the quicker we can find an open mic with an idea, the better, right? It's like I've got this thing, I've got to get out, I've got to get out and say it and get it out there. So, and the director, Dean Bryan, he was awesome. And he, but he could, like, I kept trying to like, I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed to keep having to do this thing over and over again that no one, without an audience there, the thought of that that no audience just was horrific for me. Mm -hmm. And I, I like, I'd be like, I can do this on the night, but that's not, no you can't do that in theatre. Like you've got to, you've got to learn where to stand and like when to say things and, and, and then I, and also the other actors, like, I'd be like, why are they looking at me? And I'm like, mm. oh no, they're, they're acting. Like the director actually had to say to me, they're acting, they're, mm. they're in your scene. <laughs> Cause I was just like, there's other, there's all these people on the stage yeah. and I'm trying to be, so that for me was the, that was the difficult part. Just re- slamming something like imagine doing a bit for six weeks over and over again without an audience. And then, so when actually the time came for an audience, I was like, hello, mama's home. Like just, and then I found that I thought it would be, cause you know, you hear these stories of people, there were people in our cast who's like, yeah, I did Phantom for six years. So they just, you know, like, and I was like, how can you do that? But I found once it was learned, you then, it starts to live. Like you start playing with it every uh-huh. night and you don't, you don't do crazy stuff that ruins the show for everybody else, but you can start to little spurts here and there and little looks and in the same way you do with stand up, you start to maneuver and like work it. Yeah. So I would say that was the hardest part for me, for sure. That's very interesting to me. I, it's funny. I uh, did uh, celebrity theater sports recently. I hadn't done it for uh, 20 years, kind of like finally got roped into it. And the actual 
performance part of it was fine, but there was a bit beforehand where they were warming up where everyone had to like, like you go in and everyone would do it like, and I, I just didn't do it. I couldn't do it. I understand. I like hid. I hid. So I was embarrassing. like, I'm going to go to the toilet. I'm like, this is embarrassing to me. Get like a crowd of people in here. I'll do, exactly. I'll sing, I'll dance, like, I'll, I'll do whatever. But I've stripped off in front of an audience. Mm. Like I'll do anything you want with yeah. an audience, but by my, just in a room with, with a director just in the just echoing through the through the room your lines and he's like he was great and he and then, and you know and it, you had to trust the process that you would arrive at at an audience and it would be fine and it was and it was it, it was an incredible experience i absolutely loved it So, yeah, okay, so if that was the hardest thing, what was the best thing? The best thing for sure was not being on your own. So, mm-hmm. you know, you spend your life as a comedian alone. Although I've done a lot of – I've done quite a bit of sketch stuff with, like, Greg and Damien and stuff. But, like, yeah, to, to be in a thing that isn't all about you, like there were – I think there were nine of us in the cast. And then the the whole world of the theatre behind you, like the – the person who designs the set and there's amazing, you know, you know, people behind the scenes, costume, all this work coming together as a group, as an ensemble is so good. I just absolutely loved that part of it was it not being the loneliness of you, you know, we just stand side of stage by ourselves. Sometimes there's someone there from your management company (laughs) looking at you. Holding out a water and going, oh, well, good luck. <laughs> but most of the time it's just us, isn't it? Yeah. And you and sitting in those rooms by yourself backstage just going, oh, yeah, here I am again. I am interested in what it what you take out of it. Mm. So having done this, yeah. like what do you take with you to whatever it is that you mm. do next? I think, well, de- really wanting to collaborate more on whatever it is. And also I think... Wanting to go deeper, like I love the acting and I loved, I think, because you don't really get a chance, when you do TV, you don't actually get a chance to act properly. You, you're given the script, you know, you stand around, you say it, and then you say it on camera and it's over. But just that, the level of rehearsal and stuff that make, gets you deep inside a character, where you know every word and then you can start, you know, being it, I just... That to me was magic. So, you know, I think I would take that with me into whatever I do next is how to like, yeah, how to get really deep into a character, even more so. Mm. Do you think that, that like you could do that within like yourself as well? Like, I mean, as mm. a st- like it would, could you do that with your stand-up, for example? Could you spend mm. that time with yourself and who you are and that self-examination in the – or is it a completely – or does, yeah. that need to, does that need to be tried in front of an audience? I think maybe it's a different process with stand-up and, it, and the way we do it is the long festivals. And mm. I think actually it happens during the festivals is mm. you start out, you know, with – all this, all these words that you've got to say and, blah, 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 and look here and do that. And then by the end of the festival, you're in some other zone of, yeah, deep in it, I think. Is, is there a moment when you're performing, like do you get, are you always conscious of like 
what you're doing or are there moments where you're like literally just in it? Like, you know. Yeah, like- there, there are. And I love mm. those moments where, where I'm, I like the moments on stage where you, it's so, in, the instinct kicks in so hard about, and you can't put a foot wrong. <laughs> like you just, your body takes over in terms of rhythm and like pace and everything. And I, you know, you know, to move you know, you're self-directing, you know, to move there at that very moment and you know to, yeah. And that's where it's like the two things all, everything comes together. That's what I love about performing. And that's, there's no, there's no other more present you'll be in your life than that. You haven't got a single other job except this in front of like how many ever people just generating it. That's pure freedom to me. Right here, right now. Nothing yeah. else. You can't be concentrating on anything else. Nah. The minute you're thinking about something else, you're not yeah, entirely yeah, yeah. there. I, yeah, I, yeah I, I totally get all that. I, I've always had a bit of a weird pet theory that like th- there's kind of two, and they're not exclusive, but two states of sort of comedy, which is like creation and recreation. Yeah, right? like, yeah. So there is a creative energy to when you're working out something mm-hmm. or working on something, and then there is a point where it becomes about – Recreation. You've yeah. tested it a bunch of times, and then now you're doing sort of the best combined version of all your yes, previous yeah. experiences. Mm. Like, how much of your performance, like not on in something like Bloom, obviously, but like when you're on stage, when you're doing a festival run, mm. when you're doing like your own show, how much of it is the act of creation, and how much of it is the act of recreation? Mm. That's a good question because, yeah, to, hmm. I guess, yeah, there's always that maybe a week of it is creation and then it kicks into that kind of, you know, sometimes it's funny when the audience um, audience says to you, oh, do you just make it all up on the spot? But actually it's a compliment in that because you do have to start, at a certain point you have to start recreating the story every night as if somehow find the, you know, like this is the, the energy of the first time I've told you this thing. So... I reckon that takes about a week and then you get into that zone of like, now I'm going to really perform this story for you, like over and over again. Yeah. Take me back to the start. I'm interested. We got to Darwin yeah. and then you've started to, you've decided that you get, you've been doing some sketches and stuff and you've decided that you're going to do comedy. Take me back to what mm. happens. Like what was your first like proper, what you consider to be like a stand up, you know, gig mm. performance? Oh God. I, um, yeah, so I'd only done sketch stuff. I actually started out doing like filmed sketches for the ABC, which in hindsight. Really? Yeah, for the ABC Darwin. I'd made a sketch called Raylene the Racist for them that went yeah. viral. And anyway, so that was probably a bit of a false start because now you know, it was like the first thing I asked, like my mate pitched it who worked there and they went, oh, uh-huh. yeah, we'll give you a bit of money and you can use the news crew. And it was all too easy, really. <laughs> but then, yeah, came back to Melbourne and. I think I, I tried because I'd only been doing characters. I tried to go to sort of like a open mic in character as an old man, <laughs> had rehear- like worked on something in my bedroom for 10 mm-hmm. minutes and it was 10 minutes long. Like I did everything wrong and I turned up to this open mic night and I started what I thought was funny and about 30 seconds in it became apparent wasn't funny yeah. and no one in the audience knew why I had, why I was an old man or what, who I was or why this was happening. And I just bolted from the stage. I reckon after a minute, I just, just went anyway, see ya. And like, 
and ran, like, and ran out of the vet, like, ran out of the yeah. venue, and then had to stop and go, "What? You got to start smaller here." And and then I don't know. I guess raw comedy would have been the first time I just started telling stories. But I okay, I'm one of those people that raw. I was raw, like I was, mm-hmm. I was maybe f- three or four gigs in doing raw comedy. I wasn't. I hadn't been doing it for very long at all. And I thought you had to do a different set at every um, heat. So I did different sets every time, like stupid stuff like that. Yeah. But but there's no, I mean, again, like raw comedy wasn't around when I first started. Yeah, right. You know, it happened afterwards. Yeah. But like no one really sits you down and tells you like no. it's okay for you to do the same set yeah, every no. week, for example, yeah. right? Like you're, they, they sort of put on the competition and then they leave you to your own devices. Mm. Yeah, but I think if you were on the open mic scene for mm. a year beforehand, you'd know something. <laughs> well, you know. I mean, but would you? Because, I mean, yeah. of course you would. Yeah. But the thing I also know about open micers is they tell each other a lot of wrong things. Yeah, that's true. Like they're, often there yeah. becomes this group think about how something works Mm-mm. that you're like, I know you all believe this is how <laughs> this thing works because you've all told each other this is how it works, but this you're going to learn at some stage that is not actually how <laughs> things work. Yeah. You're going to get a rude shock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how I – and then I realised from yeah. that experience that I needed to become a better comedian, like, and the, the way to do that was to just do open mics until I nearly dropped dead. So, and I did that and I just Okay, so you that. threw yourself into it yeah. at that point. You yeah, just yeah, said, oh, yeah. I'm just going to – and were you – like your raw experience, were you doing different stuff in different places, like doing throwing a whole bunch of ideas at the I wall, trying so. to see what stuck? Yeah, and there were a few rooms back then where you could mm. do car- – I mean, there was no one there. It was like you and the other comedians on the gig and maybe three other weirdos. And, you, were, yeah, and I remember there was a sort of a set of us doing – I think it was sort of like Luke McGregor and a few people like that, and we were doing stuff that wasn't necessarily stand-up. So – you know, character stuff or he was doing, he was doing a lot of sketch stuff back then. Um, yeah. So I think I sort of found my way in like that. And, but then sooner or later I started to do the, what would be the bog standard open mics. And that's when I guess I became more of a stand up comedian where you have to toe the line because you can't sort of put a wig on and get a guitar out or whatever, whatever (laughs) it is. (laughs) It's spleen. So, yeah. Uh, when was the first time you did a, like a full length show? I actually did it really early on, like mm. probably too early on. I did like a half run at the Butterfly Club, probably the year after, maybe it was the same year I did Raw or the year after. And I called it Sing Us a Song, You're the Piano, Anne. <laughs> and I, like it was, it was loose. And I had like a, <laughs> A mate of mine, Amy Bennett, who used to play piano and she was on stage with me and I used to sing and yeah, I didn't, I wasn't really a stand-up comedian for a while there. I didn't, I think my my shows had music in them, at least the first four of my shows had music in them. And then gradually I just started to, most of it was, to be honest, carrying my banjo around and having to turn up for sound checks. Eventually I just went, I don't do that anymore. Got to learn how to do this without this. This is annoying. I don't want to. Yeah. I remember leaving that banjo. I used to leave it in pubs, like just under seats (laughs) and stuff. And still if someone would give it back to me, I'd be like, oh, I don't want it. 
<laughs> and everyone else is like, we don't want it either. No one wants it. So I eventually, it, that, that came out of the act and uh, as I just sort of, but also then I grew to love stand-up as well of just the pure talking. I love that. Oh, mm. like, was there a point where you were like, were you aware at this point that you're like, I'm pursuing this as a career now or? There came a crunch point. Yeah. I remember it distinctive, distinctively because I was working in my old job and they rang me up to say, would you like to go on Comedy Festival Roadshow? And I said, I can't, I've got to work and hung the phone up and then said to someone, told them what had happened. They, they were like, ring up and quit your job. Like you're quitting the wrong thing. And I was like, oh yeah. But I was like, how do I, you know, I can't give my job up. Like I had a three day a week office job. I was like, I need that job. But that became the turning point for me to go, no, all right. You have to, you have to be a comedian now and be real about it. And that, and of course it's always a, it's always the thing that makes you do it. Cause if you have to, you know, there's always a period, well, I don't know about other comedians, but there was still, there's a, there's a period where you sort of got your foot in both camps still. You're holding down a part-time job. You're like, you know, you're in the open mics, you're, you're failing and then flipping back to, I don't want to do this anymore. And then there comes a point where you've got to be like, no, I'm, I wouldn't have called myself a comedian for like the first three or four years. I don't reckon. And then I would have gone, okay, I'm a comedian. Yeah. So do you think that, like coming to it later changed that in any way? Like do you think that like Probably. You were just- well, it probably meant that I knew that I needed to have money. <laughs> and like, you know, like I knew that yeah, the rent comes around, you have to pay it. So I would have been, yeah, I, w- I don't think I would have, I don't, I probably would have jumped maybe sooner if I was younger. But I think I was still a bit like, oh, yeah, it's nice having a, it's nice knowing there's an income every fortnight. Like I was at that point in my life where I didn't want to be poor. Yeah, you don't want to have to only go to the movies on a Tuesday. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do think there is that though, right? Like you are, you're more of an adult and like probably your friends are more Mm. adults. So then, okay, so you go into this industry where I've like, I often, I mean, I've been doing this forever now, so I've seen all sorts of people Mm. come in at all sorts of different times Mm. and different ways. I'm sure you have too now. And go again sometimes <laughs> and come back again sometimes. There's yeah. no right or wrong way to do it. No. But one of the things that I do notice about someone who starts a little later mm. is that they have to deal with something that a lot of other people don't have to deal with, which is that they're, the people that they're gigging with are often not the same age as yeah. them. You're right. Like So for me, I was quite lucky that when I was a new comic, all my friends were this, kind yes. of the same age as yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I grew up and so when I'm 30 – most of my friends are at the same level yeah, as yeah, me yeah, or whatever yeah. and they're, they're 30, right? Mm. Whereas you come in at 30 mm. and you're suddenly on the scene also with a lot of people who are like 20, 21, mm. 22 and the people who are 30 might be a little bit more – like the, who yeah. you would more naturally be friends with they are a little bit more established in yeah. their world or their career. So was that mm, – like or was, were you fine? I think I was all right. Like there was yeah. people – that probably there's people that are about five years younger than me that I was mates with like yeah. – you know, as I said, Luke and Celia and I around the same age, you know, Greg, people like Greg Larson, people like that. Yeah, and but I mean, I think when you're a comedian though, as there's still a bit of looseness in your mind that means that 
as long as you've got the, that general thread with people, because I'm mates with a lot of 30-year-olds as well, you sort of have this weird connection that crosses generations about being a comedian, you know, and I've, I've never found a problem with that. I've always just been like, I'm sure, you know, I wouldn't like to be out in the open mics now with the 20-year-olds because they're all pretty serious. Um, but uh, the, Do you think they are? Do you think they are more serious? Like oh. is there any um, el- like an element of it now because people can know so – I mean I always – Think about how lucky I was. And mm. I honestly consider this to be lucky in that I started doing, like when I started doing comedy, the festival was like four years old or five mm-hmm. years old, the Melbourne Festival. Oh, yeah. Like running, like there were comedians who were making a good living out of doing mm-hmm. comedy. But mm-hmm. in a general sense, like I had a journalism degree. Yeah. And when I told people that I was quitting journalism to become a comedian, people thought that was the dumbest thing that yeah, they ever yeah, heard in yeah. their entire life. Whereas like now if I was like, I'm going to be a comedian or a journalist, everyone would be like, be a comedian. Like you can be rich and like famous and a journalist isn't a job anymore. So like it is an industry now. Totally. And people can go into comedy going, I could make – like they can see examples of people and I don't even just mean – the front-facing people, yeah, like yeah. behind – there's an industry behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. You could be a manager, writer, an agent, yeah. a publicist, a yeah. writer. Or a, yeah, there's so many different ways you could be involved in the mm. industry itself. Mm. Do you think that, you know, there is that gen- – that, that is infused in that I or think, is that – Yeah, I mean maybe it's not a bad thing but, yes, I think, I think that people getting into comedy now more and more so are looking uh, very career – yeah, it's 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 definitely a career now and it's a there's a lot of um yeah, I mean the, there's a lot of ambition and there's a lot of I guess there's a lot of getting famous pretty quickly. Like that's the there is a possibility of that now, which um wasn't around even when I started that wasn't the speed at which you can become known now is you know, you know, you can it can be can be a few clips and you're off. And you're able to sell a three thousand seater, and you probably shouldn't be. You know, we've all seen it. Well, that's. I mean, I'm interested in that as part of the creative process, yeah. not as a judgment to those who do it, but yeah. just as a, like, I feel very grateful that many of the mistakes I made were mis- exactly. were made anonymously. There yeah, is no yeah, evidence yeah. of them. Like I've made plenty since. There is evidence of, but like the real bad ones, yeah, the same. egregious comedy crimes. Most of them aren't recorded. Um, and it gave me time to learn what it was that I was trying to do or trying to achieve. Whereas, like, you know, this the idea that it can pay off for the person in the 3,000-seat venue, it's actually – I mean, for them, it's probably worked out fine. But for that idea can be quite damaging to the, all the others who are still following that same model, yeah. putting their clips up and whatever, without any of the success that comes with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah. And, yeah, I probably just sound old or I don't know. but Yeah, we are old. It's I am. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> but I just, yeah, like I – well, I I wonder whether they're missing some of the fun as well of the the – I mean, it's not all fun, but that open mic schlep is – I, it was really informative for me and it was very much as well about how I came to collaborate with people and, you know, formed, s- understood who who was on the same wavelength as me and who I could do things with. And you do all that stuff for free and you you build. And I'm sure that's still, I mean, I'm, I, 
I actually am sure that's still going on in an There'd organic way. There'd be a different way. version of it, totally. hopefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but I, I, yeah, I do uh, – the one thing that I would love to say to people is like the people you come through with, they're never your competition. Mm. They're always your future collaborators. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. They're going to be the people you work with. Yeah. Or you're going to give them a break or, yeah, when you get, when somebody gives you something, you're going to be, oh, you know who I like? Celia or mm, Luke yeah, yeah. or yeah, Damien or whoever. And – or vice versa. That's that's how it works. Yeah. But so often we're pitted in competition against each other, which is horrible. Yeah, it is. Um, there is an element of when you become a you know professional comedian that, um, you, like, I mean, I think that you came along at a time where. Like it was a better world for women in comedy, mm. but clearly, and by the way, this is not a what's it like to be a woman in comedy <laughs> question. No one's ever asked me, so yeah. I know. But, I, <laughs> no, but, in, but in a way, I'm like, I mean, I'm interested in a yeah. more intellectual level, which was, you know, what, are, what do you think were the barriers that were there mm. when you first came through? Because you would probably were a little bit more aware of it. You know, you had that life experience to be able to go, some like here are some bullshit things that are here. Yeah. And how – how much progress is being made, like in well, those areas? I think I'm I'm an example of I've seen it from. So when I started, and so what have I been doing it for? Twelve years, I reckon. About that. When I started, I was I was definitely the one woman on the lineup still, and um, you know, and that was that was the given, and you were um, you know, just that was good. They ticked their box with, with you know, you still had to have probably one woman on the lineup and that was, you know, but there was really, it was still back in the day when there was not many of us. So, you know, there was me, there was Geraldine, there was Celia, Kate McLennan, um, you know, there, 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 there were a handful of us around, um, of my, of my generation. Um, and some of them are a bit, I'm a bit younger than them, you know, in comedy terms, but then I've seen, the transformation I've seen is incredible, which is now I reckon 50% of lineups are female and I'm sure the problems haven't gone away, but I feel like I've, I've been, yeah, I'm, I'm one of the people that saw that change big time. Like it was huge. There's been a huge shift to females just being, it's standard for them to be 50% of the lineup. And well, I mean, I'll say that and probably get a million messages going, you don't know. Oh, there's plenty of lineups I'm where sure. that isn't the case, yeah. but there are at least plenty of examples where you could point to where that is the yes. case, which in Wasn't the old the days you couldn't, like, no. you couldn't find an example. No. To, like there wasn't even enough you know, comedian, like, you know, really because it wasn't an inviting place for. No, no, no. And I'm sure the open, open mics, the the base level, I mean, Adam Spencer yeah. always used to say to, me, say to me on the radio, if a um, woman, like we used to get our number, like whenever we would get a survey of who listened to the mm. radio show, like we actually had like a more female listeners than we had male listeners. But mm. if we went to the phones on anything, we got more men call than women. And the way Adam Spencer always used to put it is if a woman climbs Mount Everest, she's like, well, other people have climbed Mount Everest. <laughs> and whereas a guy does a fart in an elevator and he's like, everyone needs to hear about this. <laughs> so I'm sure at that ground level, it probably is still disproportionate, but it does feel like as we as you go up at least that – yeah. That rung, there's more focus on it. At least people 
And and when it's not, at least people point out that it's not. Yes, yes. And and I was just on the cusp. Like I yeah. I was still in the in the era of people act actively and openly saying women aren't funny and, you know, they don't book women there. Where you know, whereas to even say that now would be so like it'd just be the alarms would go off or something, you know, you can't even <laughs> so so yes, I've seen an incredible shift, um, which has been yeah, amazing. And they're, there's incredible, like, it's not even a, I don't think it's a discussion anymore. And I think the audience has shifted as well. Mo- I say that, but you know, like there's still, the, I mean, there's yeah, still look, the 60 I mean, year old pub men audiences where you walk out and go, Oh my God, like you're still here. <laughs> or you, or, you know, you go to the UK or something, <laughs> but um, <laughs> the entire UK outside of London. But um, yeah, like, yeah, it's been it's been amazing to watch, really. Yeah, it's powerful. It's great. Uh, so you talk about the UK. Mm. Like when was the first time you decided, okay, well, this shit's working here. I'm going to mm. see if it works overseas. I Well, I did the Edinburgh Fringe, and I did the Edinburgh Fringe early enough. Um, the first time I did it was fine because I was playing to eight people in Australia. Yeah. So, so it wasn't, yeah, you were so like, I'm, I'm used to this, yeah, this is so fine. so it was just that, but in another <laughs> I even country. had to readjust my expectations. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, that, I'll never forget that first Edinburgh standing backstage and ter- terrified and then walking out and just, there were eight people. I've never been happier in my, like, I was just like, yes, eight. But anyway, um, the second time I did Edinburgh, I had, I guess, had the, you know, it had shifted in Australia to me having an audience where they turn up to see you and they know who you are, which is an incredible moment, really, when that shifts. That you you don't you know you're not battling anymore. Do you remember it? Do you remember like was there something in particular that like mm. sparked it? Was there like just a moment where you were like, oh, it's it's like yeah. This there was one show through. I did where I just felt like things were sh- things were shifting. It was I don't know my sixth or seventh show or so, um, and I remember thinking these people know something about me before I walk out. And that's right, huge. Yeah. That's huge. They're, they're not just here, they're here <laughs> on purpose. Yeah. They're not just yeah. like book, booked the wrong ticket again. Yeah. Or, so, no. or, so, or you handed them a flyer or yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. you know, the version <laughs> of that there is. Yeah. So that the second time I did Edinburgh, I going back to the um, unknown was I've one of my, yeah, one of my, real spirals doing an Edinburgh fringe and just night after night going deeper and deeper into, into the, the black hole, the comedy black hole. Couldn't get myself out of it. Yeah. It was terrible. Uh, mm. So like properly, like literally couldn't get yourself out of it. Yeah. Well, so- it's that problem of when you step on stage and you can't, mm. and the, the laugh doesn't come in and you don't have the, you're, in a dark place and you don't have the ability to turn it around yeah. where you're just defeated. Where you just go, you oh, think, all right. Did you think they might be right? Yeah. Would you, like, I mean, is it, was it yeah. that? Like, did you still have know. confidence in the fact that you were funny? Like, or was you, or were you like, oh, well maybe they're oh, right. I think, yeah. Oh, I, I would say definitely by the end of it, I would have thought I was the least f- funny person on the face of the earth. Like yeah. you I was beaten down to a pulp <laughs> of like, <laughs> yeah, of just like, ah, oh. you know, but I just couldn't, yeah, sometimes you've got the resilience and I think I just, I don't know, for whatever reason, the ta- my tank was empty and I just didn't have, 
I just didn't have the capacity to go, no, no, I can turn this around. I was just defeated. So that was, yeah, I remember that as of quite. And and it's interesting to me because Edinburgh, that you know, there's this whole um, endurance test that is at Edinburgh and you have to go and you come back a better comedian. And I can say outright that I did not come back a better comedian <laughs> for that. You know, because it's sort of really, I was really a shell of a person. I was like... I can't. Yeah, it was. It was a tough. That was tough. That was a tough well, yeah, time. Well, it's like those old school. Like you know, I mean, I watched a documentary about like this college football team recently. Yeah. And, like it was this team that had been really successful, but mm. their coach was essentially breaking these young men completely. Yeah, right. To yeah. Like re- and you're like, that's. Yes, it was successful and whatever. Mm. And maybe that even works for some people to be completely broken down. But the idea that you need to be broken yeah. down f- to get the best work, it's the same thing as people go, you need to do five gigs a week or a night mm. or whatever. Like sometimes you don't. No. Sometimes you're actually a person that that's not a good thing for. That doesn't like water your creativity in those situations. I mean, I've only done Edinburgh three times and each of them – like I may be well be the only person in the history of Edinburgh who's done three shows and never lost money. Like I've had a good success oh, each time good. I've gone. Yeah. And I promise you that each time during like those three times I went, there was a time where I considered never doing comedy oh, again. Oh, totally. Like- it's, <laughs> the, it's the most – yeah, it's interesting because like I think, you know, Sam Campbell who, you know, mates with and who's yeah. amazing has just been there recently and just did half a run – and it's like this breakthrough mm. of like, yeah, yeah. Why do we have to do? Why do you have to do twenty eight shows until you're a shell of a human being? I don't really understand. I don't really understand it. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I'm like that with the comedy festival mm. now. Like, I'm just like, you know what? Two mm. weeks is fine. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I don't actually need to do four weeks. You of don't this need in to be reduced to a sort of like shaking. It's too much. Yeah. Like, I don't, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely having a, like, it was like, oh, you know, somebody was, I was doing, putting my Adelaide dates in and someone, you know, was like, oh, you know, that's a public holiday. So you can actually do a gig that night if you want. And I'm like, no, no, no it's like a night off. That's yeah. what it actually would be good for me. <laughs> a bit I of telly. <laughs> Just a bit of like a night where I don't have to, <laughs> oh man, now that I know, <laughs> I'm going to have to find my stand login. <laughs> Disappear for six hours. Where's Will? Mm. The nuns. He's just spending some time with some nuns. The hot nuns. <laughs> um, do you have, like, what are you trying to achieve when you go on stage? Like, what is it that, mm. like, because I think about this quite a lot. What's what? What am I? Why am I doing this? Like, what what is the purpose of this? What am I getting out of it? What is the audience getting out of it? Like, wh- what are you up to when you go on stage? I think I've always been um, interested in like uh, saying things that uh, that I know other people feel or think and don't want to say themselves, and having that thing of like, oh, like I've done that. Is that's so that's been always my that's always driven me is like how 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 much can how honest can I be about humiliations or whatever it is that I know other people have experienced and that's always been my objective is to say things that other people can't say. I think is there um, 
one in particular was there a moment like where you were like oh this is what I like to like is there a story or a thing that you did or a character yeah. you did or like a like was there and I'd like to say I did it and then I've never done it again but there was a story I early on in my career about shitting my pants oh yeah <laughs> you mean you'd like to say you've never told the story or never shit your pants again I'd like Wasn't to there say a story that I... in this year's show exactly. about shitting your pants <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. So I'd like to say that I did that early on in my career and yeah. then moved on from it, but I feel it seems to seems to be the case that I'm back there again. <laughs> but to me, that's like the ultimate of like I'll I'll tell it. Yeah. I'll 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 tell you everything. I'll tell you every terrible, humiliating, right. degrading thing about myself. Eventually, and then, you could have like an entire tour that consisted <laughs> of all the years, like where you've told a story of shitting your pants Probably. and you could call it your greatest shits. <laughs> yeah, just an hour of shit. Um, yeah, pretty much. But that's to me, is that's my goal, mm. I guess, is to use, is to be as honest as possible for laughs, you know? Yeah, for laughs. And I also right? want laughs. And I know mm. that's becoming unpopular, but I'm <laughs> genuinely interested in like big, laughs from comedy and that's yeah so that's interesting to mm. me because i think that is almost all that i want like yeah. i'm almost willing to do anything yeah same mm. for the audience to laugh because the whole point of me being there is to make them laugh like yeah yeah like, I, sometimes I'll see a comedian who like is intentionally trying not to make the audience laugh mm. you know, for whatever reason. And I'm not suggesting necessarily that that's even a bad thing. Mm, I'm just mm. saying when I see someone do that, all I think is, oh, my God. Like I desperately try to make people laugh all the time. Yeah, and sometimes I, sometimes it doesn't work. Mm. And I hate those moments. Yeah. And I'm trying real hard to make them laugh yeah, in those yeah, yeah. moments. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm keen on, the, on being as funny as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Which you feel like you, you shouldn't have to say as a comedian, but uh, that's what I'm into. Yeah. That's what I think comedy is, getting laughs. Uh, there's some standard questions I ask people on this podcast, mm -hmm. and I've already asked you one of them, which is what you think happens uh, when you die. Uh, one of the other ones that I like to ask people about is uh, I really am interested in, have you ever had like, either a good piece of advice or a bad piece of advice in your life that has stuck with you? When I was doing one of the Melbourne Fringes, they had a mentoring program and I was paired with John Clark, which was... Are um, you me? Yeah, incredible. And that's like... There's not like another John Clark, right? You're talking, no, about, talking about the, the John, John Clark. Clark. Yeah. Fred yeah. Dagg, yep. John Clark. Yeah, very lucky I was. One of the greatest comedy geniuses of all time, mm. John Clark. Yeah. And I don't know why he even... I don't know why he even agreed wow. to it or... But we used to... You know, and I only met up with him a few times, like as I was writing the show. And I think he remembered, I, re I remember him saying, you'll like talking about, because we talked a lot and we just gas bagged, you know, like, and he, I remember him saying this, this talk is important. Like it, you know, the, there mm -hmm. is the, there is the work of, there is the work of writing a yeah. script or writing a show. He's like, but don't underestimate this talking, like, you know, and comedians, you know, maybe someone would look in on it if they funded a room of comedians to do something and they'd look, peer through the door every now and again and go, my Godfather, what a waste of money because they're talking. They're just, you know, talking it out. But actually that's a lot of it. And that was really interesting. That was really good advice about um, 
how much of comedy is that, isn't it? It's like, it's, it's conversational for a start, you know, but it's also ideas bouncing is critical. Yeah. So that was really interesting. Mm. I mean, that's great. Like, I, I love that. Mm. And I think it extends even further into that idea of sometimes the work is when you're not doing the work. Yeah, that's exactly. the other thing. Mm. Like you can pay me for the, like you go, well, you only were on the computer for half an hour and you're like, yeah, but I, like when I was walking the dog, I was thinking about it. And when I was cleaning the pool, I was thinking about it. And that was all part of it as well. And it doesn't actually work unless I have that time for it to jog around. As There was some, I can't even remember what the show was, but I remember it was quite a successful, like, you know, weekly American sitcom. Mm. And I read an article and they very much said that the way they wrote it was that they went in and the first thing was everyone just said, what'd you get up to on the weekend? And everybody would say what they did on the weekend. And most of the time, by the time they all said what they did on the weekend, they'd have most of the show written because the show was just you know, those fun, funny things and the way that everybody riffed about it was pretty much how the show was written. So, oh man, like John, were you intimidated by? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was, yeah, I was, I used to bring, I think that's probably, probably why he said it. Cause I used to bring like, um, big, you know, all my notes and my, and had everything written out and was probably trying to show him like, and you know, this bit will lead to this bit. And and he'd be like, yeah, but what what, um, what do you reckon about whatever? And I'd be like, oh. And then we'd chat and laugh and, and whatever and, you know, and I think, yeah, I was intimidated, but he was a very warm, you know, as is often the way with comedians, very, there was no elite, there was nothing elite about him or superior or he's just like, what's, what's funny? Let's, let's have a chat and see what, see what comes up that's funny. So that's, yeah. He, he really, yeah, it was amazing, really. Yeah, very lucky. That comedy, um, like, I mean, it's not always the case. There are plenty of comedians, I'm sure, who don't have that. But Seinfeld, you know, for all his sins, described it as a secret handshake that yes. all comedians have. That, like, yeah. there is a recognition of, like, well, you did it and I did what you did at some stage. And also, as I often say to people, like, I still – you will still do gigs with people who are starting out or yeah. whatever. Like part of what we do is like lineups and yes, collections totally. and, you know, where we're all just – it's an interesting job stand-up in particular because on day one they make you do the job that is the job that yeah. – like they just make you do it for less time. Yeah. But it is <laughs> the same job, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Walk yeah. out on stage with nothing but your ideas and entertain this room full of people. Yeah. Like eventually will increase the amount of time you have to do it for and how many people are in the room. But other than that, it pretty much is the same job from day one. Most jobs, they don't let you use the photocopier by yourself on the first day, but stand <laughs> up, they're just like, well, give it a go. Yeah. So yeah, you go. You and know, in, you want to be a pilot? We'll just let you fly a short distance on the first day. And there's also no training or, you know, even no. theatre is, um, you know, can be elitist in that it's, you know, you may have to have gone, not always, but, you know, you might have had to have been at VCA or somewhere first to get in. But comedy should be for every, you know, I mean, it hasn't been that way. It's been very male dominated, but you know, like it's, if you can be funny, you're suddenly on, on par with whoever else is funny, you know, and, and you'll see, you know, and you can have that backstage funniness and re it's a real equalizer, I think. Mm. Uh, 
Do people come to you for advice now? Like, I mean, you've been doing this long mm. enough and had a success that, that I imagine people come to you for advice now. Yeah. I've done a little bit of like mentoring and, you know, or just, you know, informal kind of with younger, they're all women, all the younger, you know, female comedians. Um, so, yeah, they they have, I mean, because I, I feel that in particular Judith did that for me, you know, and it was never, it's never like, you know, nothing official, but she took, she did do, she, she, and she does it for a lot of women. She just takes you out for lunch, you know, and, and just lets you talk. And, and I mean, like I came And by in, the way, I will say this just because it's like, I mean, the greatest Australian comedian of all time in my opinion, but like I, she did it for me as well. Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. That's the thing. Like, you know, you talk about that idea of like, Maybe not in the quite the same way, but yep. she absolutely did. She had yeah. time. It wasn't just that she was looking after the women coming yeah, through. Right. Yeah. She really did have that sense of, you know, if you were willing to listen to what she had to say, that she would let you know. Yeah, and, yeah, And I yeah. found it incredibly valuable. Like, so I, valuable. Yeah. yeah. And just to let, yeah, just to let you talk. Um, but, yeah, so I try. I try to help. You know, I try to give advice where I can, but, you know, I'm, pro- I'm sure like you – you don't feel like you've got much advice to give. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's the only thing I can say to anyone is to be, to do comedy is to just do it, is to go into every awful open mic and keep, keep turning up there even after you bomb. I mean, I mean, even if there is an express way through via clips, sooner or later the comedy Reaper will come calling, come knocking <laughs> <laughs> and knock three times and ask, are you uh, funny? Uh, you, can't, you can't run forever from that. Yeah. So I don't think there's any other way than the open mics. Perhaps I'm do wrong. You, do you feel that the reasons you do comedy now are different to the reasons that you did comedy when you started comedy? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, now that I've got – a family and, you know, little Gwen and, and stuff. I don't, I love, I mean, I love comedy and I love, I think I love performing and I've realised that that is, it, you know, you get into this bind, you get into this situation in comedy and I guess, you know, it, that TV does feel like the pinnacle, like that we're all aiming for or something and, you know, you have to keep striving for it and striving for it. I think I'm becoming a bit more, I'm realising how important it is just to perform on stage and how, and I think probably in places like America and the UK, I think that is more valued than it is here in terms of that being your, like an important, that's a job. And I think that's, yeah, I think I'm just becoming a bit more, like comedy for me is, um, I love it and I do it, but also I don't, it can't, I can't, it can't spiral me anymore. Because I can't let it. Because I've got, I've got a little person who's having her own spirals, <laughs> and I, they they're more important. Uh, talk to me about love. Like, was love something that you know you were yeah. looking for? Like, like the idea of being loved to be able to love was it something that was? Well, I'm you know, a comedian, to find someone yeah. To love? So, like, I, mean, I mean, looking yeah, for love. <laughs> That's a different sort of like I'm yeah. take away from the love of an anonymous stranger. I'm talking about someone who loves you for who you really are or your capacity to love someone for who they really are. Yeah, I mean, of course, yeah, I was looking for that. And probably didn't real probably 
didn't realise how much until I had it that I was missing it in terms of the sort of men in my 30s or whatever that I was, you know, hanging out with or, yeah, like the sort of stupid relationships that weren't that weren't real or weren't, you know, just silly stuff. Um, so yeah, I def, I think it was definitely missing some, yeah. Once you, once you find someone who you can hundred percent be yourself around and vice versa, you sort of, yeah, it's, yeah. That unconditional love is pretty amazing, pretty incredible foundation to fall back on, I guess I would call it. Yeah. Uh, if you could wake up tomorrow, you don't have to do your 10,000 hours to learn how to do it. Mm. You just have any skill you want mm. in the world and you can interpret that in whatever way you want to interpret it. But you can have any skill without having to learn how to do it. You just have that skill. What would you love to be able to do? I would probably love to be able to properly write music. And I, I can to a, in a very basic way, but I would like to be able to read it read and, and learn music like like I, like it was a second language kind of thing. Mm. Is there a – like you talked about not having like, you know, particular comedy influences when you were asked about that, but like do you have musical influences? Casey was there Chambers. Like a mus- is it Ca- <laughs> Casey Chambers. Yeah. I yeah. love Casey Chambers. Yeah, I, I love ca- – Have you music. seen that version of her doing Eminem's eight months? Mar- yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen the, that. Yeah, lose yourself from Eight Mile. Yeah, yeah, real good. Well, that was real good. Though. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love her. Um, yeah, like Emmy Lou Harris. What is it about Casey Chambers that you love? Like, I think tell it's. Me. I think it's. Um, and it's probably country music. More is is the honesty of country music and yep. the simplicity of it. It's just story. Like it's a, they're mini. They're like little mini stories. You know, I mean, I'm sure a lot of songs are like that, but country to me feels like. Just a little, every song's just a little story that's, you know, that's not about, you know, I think, because I, you know, the characters I create or whatever, they're, they're just normal people. I love that. I like, I like normal people. I don't like sort of celebrities and nonsense. I like normal stuff. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm like, I don't know a heap about Casey Chambers. This is my external observation. Mm. But what I do like and admire about her is that, I love people who create their own worlds, that their yeah, own ecosystems yeah. where yeah. they kind of seem to – I mean, I know country music is also an ecosystem of its own and all those sort of things, but it just feels like Casey Chambers has a world in which Casey Chambers fans go to see Casey Chambers yeah. and then they allow Casey as long as she, like, does whatever – like, as long as she believes in it, they also are like, mm. yeah, we believe in this too because, like – and I admire that. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think as well, like – I remember reading um, about her talking about a review. Like, cause so when she's, you know, country's a bit cool now and, you know, there's alternative country and stuff. But when she was trying to start out in country in Australia, it was, it was, I think it was rough going. And I think she got tough reviews and she, but she stuck to what she knew, you know, she, that people would love eventually. And I, you know, of course I admire that because I think that's. Yeah what you have to do. It's like, no, no, no. I know you're saying it's shit, but I swear to God, I swear to God. Well, that's hard. Like, it's I hard. mean, and the people who I think it is uh, absolutely what eventually 
rewards people, yes. but it's hard to get through that period where people don't get it no. yet, right? Yeah, yeah. You're like, come on, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on my desk, I used to have a little uh, inspirational like saying, as much as I believe in inspirational sayings, that not that much, but this is the one that I did have. Mm. It said, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? Mm. And the way I would interpret that for me was always just – when I sat down to do something, don't think about whether it'll be successful or not. Just yeah. assume that it assume that it is successful. Mm. If you are doing something successful, what would you like it to be, right? So if you were assured of success, mm. what is the project or mm. thing or whatever that you would like to do? Me? Um, yes. I would definitely be um, writing like narrative comedy, you know, like character-based narrative comedy, which I think is a bit tricky at the moment. Like I don't know if it's – cool anymore but um yeah like I would be that's what I would be doing yeah if I knew I could you know immediately have it made then yeah I would be doing that mm. uh two more questions and then we're done mm. and Edmonds um actually I think we've done the second last one one more question and then mm -hmm. we're done mm -hmm. but firstly let's plug some stuff what can we plug Ooh. You got anything to plug? Are nah. you doing like a festival show or anything? Nah. You, uh, oh, well, I, I might be, but I don't have anything at the moment. I that... know, but we can get some buzz going. We can get a little <laughs> heat. We can, have you been paying attention? You appear yes. on that pretty regularly. Yeah, People yeah. can check that out. I mean, I just finished a musical. Play. Um, yeah. So uh, what have, is there a, like is Bloom done for now, or is there um, a chance that well, it happens? Think, I mean, it's sold out for like six yeah. weeks. You'd think it, it would be. Touring. Do it but again in, or tour or something? Yeah. I think theatre takes a long time for them to sort There's out. There's a big lead because yeah. you have to get a theatre for yeah. like all that 2026. time. 2026. You're like, what? I'll yeah. be dead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I will be doing stuff next year. Don't you worry. Yeah. I don't okay. Know. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what it is, but look out for it. Follow me on Instagram and boy, yeah. oh boy, are you going to just get some real good updates. I mean, where is the best place? I mean, that's what I always say to people yeah. is like, where's the best place to get updates? If For you specifically, if people want updates on like what you're doing, yeah. where is the best place to find that? Instagram. I'm a classic yeah, okay. Gen X. I'm still on Instagram. I'm not. They've tried to put me. Well, they have put me on TikTok, but I can't. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not participating. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want another one. So, yeah, it's all Instagram for me. Mm. Well, Instagram's still around, so check out Instagram. Yeah, you yeah. Know? check it out. Mm. That is okay. Get on uh, there. Final question, Edo. Mm. Thank you so much for doing this, by the way. That's all it's right. It's been a great pleasure. I appreciate it. Mm. Um, uh, so if I had a time machine that could take you anywhere in the future or anywhere in the past, mm. uh, you can visit yourself. You don't need to. You don't need to worry about timelines or affecting things or what any of that nonsense. Like this is a hypothetical question and you have no social responsibilities. So what I like to say is you don't need to kill Hitler unless your particular <laughs> passion in life is killing Hitler. I'm not going to rule it out if that's what you've always dreamt well, of doing. Well, now it feels bad if I, say, if I don't say, no, I don't want to do that. Like what does that say? It's like, yeah, he no, was No, no, no. This is fine. what I'm saying. You don't need to – like my point being is – we will, using this same technology, send someone back who is more qualified to kill Hitler than you. Yeah. So the only reason we're sending you back to kill Hitler is if your dream for your entire yeah. life is, I've wanted to kill Hitler. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think I would go forward just to check that Gwen's all right when I'm gone. Yeah. That's where I'd go. Uh -huh. yeah, How far like, forward would you comfortably go? Maybe to, like, maybe till sh when she was like, I don't know, 70 and just check that uh -huh. she's had an okay time and that. She's got like 
everything she needs. That's where I'd go. Mm. And Edmunds, thank you so much for doing the show. I super appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Will. Appreciate it. Listener.